Amy Coney Barrett's Supreme Court hearings, Pelosi's meltdown on national television, and the Burisma Biden bombshell that's being blocked. This is what's happening on politics today. I'm James O'Hara, the host of the show, and uh, I want to thank all of you guys for listening who are following me and listening to this uh, podcast that I record. A lot of this stuff is done right off the cuff. Um, I do make, make I make uh, pretty meticulous show notes on this when I come to do the show, but today a lot of stuff happened in the news, and I felt like I had to come out here and do this. I, I've been watching the Amy Coney Bryant, uh, or Amy Coney Barrett, I'm sorry, uh, hearings for the um, the Supreme Court uh, position, the justice uh, nomination, and I've been planning on doing a podcast on these. I've been watching it over the last couple of days. Uh, it's been a few-day process. Uh, they started these introduction of the hearings um i believe it was on i was on monday and then tuesday they had questioning and today is wednesday they had questioning um also today uh and then there's going to be a vote that comes later so i've been trying to catch up on everything and make sure i knew all the different details watch all the different uh, exchanges between her before i came on and, and did a podcast so i'm pretty caught up on it i was watching today's and uh, just gathering some last info for this. But what really brought me to the table is there's been some big news stories that have come out that I felt like had to be um, spoken about. And they're things I've mentioned before, and they've kind of all come to fruition here and, and to a conclusion. So let's start with the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. Um, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, she is, um, if you don't know, she has been nominated to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court. And she is a conservative woman uh, judge, so she has been phenomenal. I think in these hearings, I think she's done an excellent job at uh, addressing the questions that have been brought before her. I think she's proven that she is well equipped and well qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. Um, she's been very careful not to get into the weeds on certain issues that some of the Democrats um, on the uh, panel have tried to trap her into and she's been able to avoid those pretty well um she's invoked the ginsburg rule um which is a rule that came out of the ginsburg uh hearings when ruth Bader ginsburg was nominated to go into the court where ruth Bader ginsburg said it would be improper for a supreme court nominee to address how they would vote or uh, you know how they would rule on cases that would come before the court or could come before the court in the near future um, and so she's been very careful to invoke that in these hearings, um, which has kind of become the standard for many Supreme Court justices now. They don't want to prejudice themselves before they are actually put on the court um, as to how they would make a decision. And in all honesty, uh, I, I think that's a valid excuse. Uh, I know that the politicians and the senators on the on the committee they do want to hear how would you do this how would you vote and this what they you know try to get an idea feel for what a a uh, supreme court nominee might do if put on the court i can understand that but in this case amy coney barrett is a law uh, a judge she's a federal judge already she's already had decisions she's on the seventh court of appeals and she's already had decisions that they can go off so they can go off for a history and not necessarily off what she says or her opinion of something might be i think that's a very important thing to look at here as far as when she's not answering these questions but overall the questions are geared towards one thing the the democrats know that they can't stop her nomination from happening 
Um, she's going to go forward. She's going to be confirmed. They, they will fill the seat with Amy Coney Barrett. It's just a matter of time. And they know that they can't stop it. They're, they're talking about different procedural things they can do to try to stop it, but they really can't do anything to stop it. Um, so they have resorted to uh, attacking on a line, which makes really no sense at all. Uh, they have been attacking uh, Amy Coney Barrett on her positions as far as being pro-life and her being a conservative justice. So the, those attacks have pretty much fell on their face. Um, it, is, it does amaze me, though. It always amazes me how in lockstep the, Dem- the Democrat Party really is. Uh, there is no dissent from the Democrat Party. There is no free thinking on the Democrat side of the aisle. Everything that comes down from the top is regurgitated and comes out of their mouth in the form of literally the same question over and over and over again, bringing up Roe versus Wade, how she'll rule on a case about Roe versus Wade and abortion, and also bringing up issues with uh, the Affordable Care Act. And they've all kind of fell flat in their face, luckily for her. If uh, if I was Amy Coney Barrett and I was going to give an answer um, to these people, I would simply tell them that I would tell them how I'm going to rule after I get confirmed because Congress doesn't deserve to know what I'll do. And I'll do my breast to get it done. In uh, the immortal words of Joe Biden, that is the answer Joe Biden gives to everything he's asked when it comes to whether he would pack the court or not. And that really is the bigger issue here. So the issues of Affordable Care Act and the issues of the of the of abortion really aren't that relevant. They they really aren't. They they are being used to scare people into thinking that Amy Coney Barrett is some horrible person that's from the Handmaid's Tale that's going to take away your you know the right to an abortion or take away the Affordable Care Act. And that's really not the case. The reality is, cases come before the Supreme Court by litigants, people who have an issue. That case is then tried in lower courts and then appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court takes on those cases where it thinks has a constitutional impact, where the Constitution needs to be interpreted to understand if this case is violating some tenet of the Constitution or not. So Amy Coney Barrett is not going to control what cases that she hears. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court may. And then she doesn't know what the details of those cases are necessarily going to be until she's on the court and actually has the litigants in front of her and they are making their arguments about the case. And then, like any judge, they have to take the case on its merits and make a decision about what it's going to be, whether that be a case that brings up Roe versus Wade or a case that brings up the Affordable Care Act. Every justice would do the same thing. So to sit there and say and pontificate on whether a Supreme Court justice is going to rule one way or another really, there's no knowing until you know the details of the case itself. And so there's no answer that a justice or a a presumptive justice could possibly give that would be correct because they haven't seen the issues and the, the arguments that have been laid out in the case itself. 
So these are things used to scare people into thinking that their health care is going to get taken away. And you can see that happening in these hearings with the Democrats rolling out pictures of people who would be impacted if the Affordable Care Act was taken away and they're going to lose their health insurance. And they're going to, you know, the worst case scenario is possible for people with the worst conditions or pre-existing conditions that they're afraid won't be covered. It's a false argument. It's fake. It doesn't exist. They can parade as many pictures of people they want out there, but every person in politics has said pre-existing condition coverage that was brought up in Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, is something that they want to maintain. This is the position of President Trump. It's the position of all the Republicans in the Congress and all the Democrats in the Congress. So no one is saying they want pre-existing conditions to be taken away. Any kind of Obamacare quote-unquote fix uh, would include pre-existing conditions. So that's a false argument on its own. It's proven that way. Don't know why it keeps getting repeated by people in the media and in these Democrat senators as something that's going to be a reality. It is not a reality. As for the Affordable Care Act itself, as Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the committee, pointed out today in his opening statements, the Affordable Care Act is not a good law. It's a bad law. It has not worked the way it was intended to work. And it's not because it's been kneecapped by Republicans, as like the the line is given all the time, that the Republicans have removed aspects of it and therefore have hurt the law. That's not true. They haven't removed any material aspect of the law which would change its effect. The law has failed on every front, and that is why it is kneecapped itself. And that's because the law was never actually written as a law. Uh, the Affordable Care Act was an idea. It was an effort to push the country towards a more government-centralized health care system, but coming short of single-payer. And that's because single-payer health care was not popular in the United States. People didn't want it. And so everything had to be done with Obamacare to avoid the single-payer aspect, but try to put as much government control into the healthcare system as possible to bring healthcare to people who weren't insured. Now, it had it had very important good beginnings. Like they were humble beginnings. The idea that you want to help everyone and give them healthcare. Healthcare costs were rising out of control prior to the Affordable Care Act being put in place. But the Affordable Care Act did not solve that problem. Healthcare costs have gone up since then, on average 33%. So it has not fixed any problem with healthcare prices and costs rising. It simply reduced access to healthcare for all Americans. People on the exchanges in Obamacare, which is the government sector of the uh, Obamacare bill, the exchanges began with five, six different providers working in these exchanges. Um, the idea was that we pool people together and then you could have these exchanges come in where it would be reduced cost healthcare and kind of like a discount rate and, that, and they would take the discount rate because there's more people that they could insure. It failed. There are states where you have, in, in many states, you have one healthcare insurance per, uh, you know, provider on the exchange. And that's simply because the law says you have to have someone on the exchange. And so there's one person. Well, that's not choice. 
They can charge whatever they want at that point. They're not competing with anybody at that point. The only thing they're competing with is the law itself, which is not working to provide health care for the people it needs to provide for. So there there are fixes out there. And, I, and, and if you've listened to my podcast, I've completely destroyed Republicans who had no answer to this and had voted 70 different times to repeal Obamacare and then when actually taking over the House and the Senate, not having any kind of plan to replace it with at all. I think that was ridiculous, and it was a major failing of Paul Ryan and the House Republicans when they had taken the House. And the reason why this, the House got retaken by the Democrats, that was, I think, the primary reason was they never had an answer. They, they talked a lot of trash and never had anything to back it up, and that's a major problem with Republican politicians on their own, that they don't have answers for these problems when they've had a lot of time to come up with them. And there are answers out there. There are um, you know, market solutions to health care which could bring down costs that should be addressed and could be addressed that aren't being addressed necessarily. So there are issues there that could be addressed by uh, the Affordable Care Act being repealed, but it hasn't been done. But either way, blaming Amy Coney Barrett for getting on the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court making a ruling to say that something is not constitutional simply shows you that the bill is not good, right? A good bill should be declared, or, or a not good bill, rather, should be declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And it should have elements of it removed if it's not doing what it's supposed to do and it's not constitutional. That is the job of the Supreme Court, to yell and berate a Supreme Court nominee because they think that that's a good viewpoint is crazy. That is the point of the Supreme Court. That's civics class. That's The Supreme Court's job is to interpret the Constitution and make sure that laws that are passed follow the Constitution. So... You know, the mental gymnastics you have to go through to try to say that that's, that's a bad thing is, is really mind-boggling to me. So I think most of the Democrat attacks have fallen on their face in, this, in these hearings. I think Amy Coney Barrett has done an excellent job explaining what originalism is and how she views the Constitution. And, and, and it gives you enough insight to how she would rule. And, and also including that she's ruled previously – uh, on cases that have gone against her personal beliefs in the Seventh Circuit. She has had cases um, that were brought up that necessarily didn't go along with her Catholic beliefs, and they have they, she's ruled the other way according to the law. So she has evidence in her record of being a good judge and letting the law and Constitution speak for itself. So I think there's no question she'll get confirmed for that. And you can tell that the Democrats are losing steam on this because the attacks have really petered out into uh, or devolved rather into really dumb, silly attacks. Uh, You have Maisie Hirono from Hawaii, uh, Senator, questioning whether Amy Coney Barrett has ever sexually assaulted somebody. That was an actual question brought up in these hearings. I don't know how that's even remotely relevant to the content being discussed. Um, Also bringing up the word sexual preference as being offensive to people. That was news to me. I didn't know asking someone what their sexual preference would be uh, would, one, either be appropriate or, two, be offensive in the first place. Um, But it looks like Webster's Dictionary has already changed that to offensive, which is even more disturbing on its own. Um, So overall, the, the... seat will be filled with Amy Coney Barrett. Um, I think the one other argument that Democrats brought up that uh, it seemed to be pushed home by a lot of them 
was, you know, that this is uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat and she wouldn't have wanted certain things to happen and stuff like that. Uh, seats are not owned by the people who inhabit them. Uh, seats in the Supreme Court are simply used while the person's there. And when they're gone, another person takes over that chair and rules the way that they're supposed to rule. That is the way this works. No one is put in place to replace another person who has the exact same mind and thought process as that other person and is supposed to carry out that person's legacy for some reason. That is not the way the Supreme Court operates. That's not how the United States operates. That's how dictatorships operate. That's how absolute monarchies operate. But that's not how the United States, under a constitutional republic, operates. Uh, If we did, many legislative decisions that were passed in the past would not uh, be in effect today if we were following simply the precedent of someone who sat in that seat before you and what they did. I mean, could you imagine if you applied that same philosophy to any other time in history? Like, you know, let's go back to the 1890s. And Plessy versus Ferguson, and a decision that was made by the court then to uphold segregation as legal, right? The Plessy versus Ferguson is the case where uh, separate but equal was upheld as a allowable thing under the Constitution, that it was okay to segregate people as long as there were equal accommodations given to those people. Um, obviously, today, we look at that and we think that's outrageous, in fact, it was overturned. There's a case that comes 58 years later called Brown versus Board of Education where segregation is ruled by the court to be illegal, right? A precedent was established by Plessy versus Ferguson that segregation was okay. That precedent was overturned by Brown versus Board of Education. So the idea that there's settled law and that there's precedents that can't be overturned is kind of, uh, you know, a misnomer. They can be. They Sometimes they should be. But if we had people sitting on the court back in the 1890s who had ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson, and then the people taking those people's seats when they left the court were ha- having to adhere to that person's judicial philosophy in order to honor their memory or honor the seat that they are now filling and therefore have to carry out that person's legacy into the future. We would not have the overturning of precedents like we do in our system. We would not be getting better as a country and forming a more perfect union, as the preamble to the Constitution says. So I think having a switch over to Amy Coney Barrett, someone who follows the Constitution, is a good, positive thing. So that's my take on what's going on with the Supreme Court. I'll continue to watch it, update you if anything, of course, happens on that front. In other news, we have the COVID-19 or coronavirus negotiations over coronavirus relief. Um, Nancy Pelosi, this, uh, this kind of hit the airwaves, it came viral. Nancy Pelosi was on with Wolf Blitzer from CNN and was giving an interview And Wolf Blitzer asked her a question. Um, I don't even want to characterize this as a tough question because it's not a tough question. Um, Wolf Blitzer asked her uh, if or why, rather, she isn't negotiating 
with the Trump administration on the $1.8 trillion that Republicans have offered and why she isn't basically taking that deal. In his words, it's not perfect, but you don't let the perfect spoil the good. And so why aren't you coming to the table and negotiating Nancy Pelosi? And Nancy Pelosi had a literal meltdown on television. I, I mean, she could not respond to this question. It, it was as if being asked or being questioned by the the peasants, being questioned by the peasants in the media um, was too much for her. Uh, how could they question the queen the little dictator, Nancy Pelosi, how could they question her and her her mind and her ability to negotiate and what she wants? Um, and the reality is, there was a very simple answer to that question that she didn't want to give. And the answer is something I brought up in the past. These negotiations have nothing to do with actually bringing relief to the American people. They have zero to do with that. right? Nancy Pelosi does not care about people getting $1,200 relief checks or people getting helped and getting food assistance or any of those things, she does not care about that. If she cared about that, she would have come to the table months ago and made a deal with the president's uh, officials, the the people he sent out there, um, to make a deal and come up with something. Even if it wasn't 100% of what they wanted, they would have been able to at least get assistance out to people and help them get through this troubling time. I mean, we're getting to a point where you still have a lot of unemployed people. The situation is getting better. Um, but the situation's only getting better because the, this administration has taken a very pro-opening approach to the economy, right? Open up the economy, get things going, even though at the risk of coronavirus spreading, in order to get the economy back up and running, get people employed, because people making a paycheck is way better than people getting an unemployment check, right? So that that was the position of this administration. They've been ridiculed for it in the media and ridiculed by Democrats for doing this, um, as you know, they're killing people basically being accused of that. Um, but I think it's the right approach, and it's a good thing that this administration has done this because you have zero action happening from the politicians in Washington to give any assistance to anybody, and that's because this is a political, um, it's it's a political plaything, right? It's a political toy for the Democrats. If they pass any kind of legislation that it helps the American people. It's going to be looked at as a win politically for the Trump administration. President Trump is running a very, very tight election right now, and little wins are important to him. And if he got that win, of course, he's going to advertise it out, right? He's going to put his name on the checks and send them out to everyone, and he's going to say, look at all these great things I did for you, because that's what presidents do. Presidents take uh, credit for good things that happen in their administration. And, of course, they deflect all the bad things that happen in their administration on other people. That is what every presidential administration has done in American history. And it would be no different in an election year for President Trump. Nancy Pelosi has been around for 40 years. She knows that. She knows that's what the president is going to do. So she has done everything in her power to prevent a bill from getting to the floor that would actually pass that has assistance for the American people. And we've seen it. They passed a $3.3 trillion bill way back months and months and months ago. That was not serious. That had no actual serious effect on helping people. Sure, they gave you some money. Sure, they throw some money to these other things. But it was major bailouts for all these states that had been running deficits for years. 
and now he's using coronavirus as the excuse to funnel federal money into these states as a giant redistribution of wealth to these states um, so that Nancy Pelosi could pay off all these people that have been loyal to her. And that was the motivation behind it. So it was never serious. And from a pure negotiating standpoint, sure, you throw a real high number out there, right? And then you expect someone to counter, and then you meet in the middle, right? That's any negotiation you're going to do. So the $3.3 trillion was never actually a serious number that was going to be really um, disputed back and forth. And to say it was, you're lying to yourself. If you think that they were serious about $3.3 trillion, more money than has ever been spent by the United States government at a single time in our entire history. If you thought that was serious, then... I have a bridge to sell you somewhere, right? I mean, it's it's not. So I, I honestly think $1.8 trillion that the Republicans countered with is way, way too much, right? And they've come up from their number originally. I think they were down $1 trillion or $1.2 trillion. They've come up to $1.8. And the Democrats have come down to, I think it's 2.2 or 2.4. I mean, the numbers start to get crazy. When you start talking about trillions of dollars, it, it's hard to wrap your head around exactly how much debt this country would be taking on with this and how much we're going to have to pay back for this, right? This isn't like, oh, we're going to give you some stimulus and it's going to be paid back in the long run by the economy getting better. This is, we're going to blow money down a hole and hope that it helps people and fixes the problems when it really isn't going to help that many people unless it's directly, you know, in their hands. And so that's what the bill should be focused towards, not towards bailing out states or anything else or non-COVID related stuff should be focused on the people who actually are being affected by the shutdowns and everything else. And of course, again, the best way to get out of this is to open things up and have the economy take off and produce income, produce wealth, right? Produce gross domestic product rather than sit back and let to the government to bail itself out, right? You know, it's like the old adage that you're got a hole in the boat and you're got a bucket and you're just pushing the water back in the boat, right? The reality is you're still sinking. So this isn't an answer to anything opening that the economy really is. But the amazing thing was watching Nancy Pelosi just squirm in her seat with rage that she was asked this question by Wolf Blitzer. That how could anyone actually question what Nancy Pelosi was doing? Even so much to call Wolf Blitzer a Republican apologist. An apologist for the Trump administration. I mean, it, he works for CNN. CNN. CNN is not or can never be confused with an apologist or an apology organization for the Republicans or for the Trump administration. That is insanity to even, you know, presume that. So it was interesting to watch her do it, but it's, you know, as funny as it is, it's frustrating because it's very telling to how Nancy Pelosi, the leader of the Democrats, thinks about negotiations to help the American people. That she got outraged by being asked the question about what she did. I mean, this is a woman who went on vacation twice while negotiations were going on to avoid having to actually come up with something and negotiate, right? She sent them home, representatives home, while negotiations were going on so they wouldn't have to negotiate. So she was willing to do that and stop negotiations and now I was wondering why she would be ever be questioned for not coming to the table when $1.8 trillion is being offered by the administration to try to solve people's problems. I mean, absolute outrage. Everyone should be outraged by that. And 
speaking of outrage, this brings me to my last point I wanted to bring up, which is the the Biden Burisma Burisma. I'm sorry, bombshell that came out um, earlier today or uh, last night, and that was this this leak or report rather of these emails that have surfaced from Hunter Biden's computer. Now, these are emails from officials at the company, uh, gas company, Ukrainian gas, gas company, Burisma, who Biden's son, Hunter Biden, was working for on the board for them. So he was on their board. He was getting paid some astronomical amount. I think it was like $85,000 a month to sit on the board of this company and do nothing. Um, he doesn't even speak Ukrainian and hadn't even visited there, I think, at the time when they put him on this board. And he's getting paid $85,000 a month to do this. Um, and so the story that has been rolled out by the Biden campaign and by Hunter Biden himself is that he was just a, he's just a lost soul, right? He's just a lost guy who, you know, hasn't made very good choices in his life. He smoked crack. He married his brother's widow. You know, he's had babies with people that, you know, we barely knows and all these things, right? So he's made a lot of bad decisions in his life. And that simply getting on the board of a corrupt gas company in Ukraine and profiting millions of dollars from them was simply just another bad decision in a long line of bad decision that this guy's made all his life. And it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, that's just, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that this has happened to him. And, you know, Joe Biden had no connection, no connection at all, no idea what his son was doing. And um, his son was, you know, perhaps just using his, his father's, you know, name as vice president and his title to get access to all this kind of stuff. And that, you know, that has nothing to do with Joe Biden. And, and had that, if that is true, had that been the fact, no one would be, you know, it would be unadvisable, but it would be understandable. You could say, you know, oh, Joe Biden really didn't know about this, right? He didn't know about what his son was doing. And uh, his son was just doing nefarious things, and like his son does. And, you know, Bo Biden was the good one, and Hunter Biden was the bad one. And, you know, Joe Biden just didn't want to have his son be raked through the coals and all the political stuff that goes through in a presidential campaign. It was trying to protect his son, right? That would have been one thing. I mean, people, can, people can understand that. You've got bad people out there do bad things. They take advantage of family members so they can enrich themselves and things like that. It, it does happen. Uh, the, the Trump family's been accused of this for years, um, even though there's zero evidence to support any of that happening in the Trump administration. So here's where this bombshell really hits. Emails have now been found that say the exact opposite of this. You know, Joe Biden was asked months ago whether he knew about what his son was doing. And his response was unequivocal that he had no idea, right? That he, ne- he said he never spoke to his son about any of the stuff that his son was doing in his businesses, right? Joe Biden didn't know any of it. Never spoke to him about it. What his son did was what his son did. Well, now we find out that that's 100% false. Emails have now been surfaced from Hunter Biden's um, computer, presumably, that say that... Um, this isn't true. Joe Biden actually met with people from Burisma Holdings, this gas company in Ukraine, that 
Hunter Biden was the keystone. He was the one who set up the meetings between Joe Biden and these higher-up officials at Burisma. So, and this was over how they were being treated in the Ukraine by the government there, which is really common knowledge here because we have a lot of information about what was going on in Ukraine with this switchover between one administration to a different administration, a corrupt administration to a non-corrupt administration, and, of course, these prosecutors that were involved, um, one that was fired um, for investigating Burisma because he was corrupt, and a new one that then, of course, took over that was uh, not corrupt, according to the Obama administration. And we have heard that story before, right? It's been propagated through everything, and it's been kind of thrown out there that, oh, you know, nothing wrong happened um, with Joe Biden. And even though Joe Biden was the point person by the Obama administration on anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine and is on camera withholding or, or you know, basically threatening to withhold billions of dollars in aid to a country over a prosecutor that they were saying was corrupt. And then, of course, it's come out that that prosecutor was investigating Burisma Holdings, this gas company. And now these emails come out and surface that show that Joe Biden not only knew that his son was involved in his company, that his son set up a meeting between him and some officials from that company. And they met with each other and had some kind of successful meeting. And now there's, you know, this, this uh, television, you know, on TV, Joe Biden withholding Billions of dollars unless they fire the prosecutor, right? He boasts about it on that video where he says, you know, oh, I told him you're not going to get the $100 billion and, you know, you know, son of a bitch is fired next, right? He bragged about getting this prosecutor fired, the same prosecutor that's being discussed in these elements with Burisma and this investigation going on, which now is being revealed that there's some kind of connection here between Hunter Biden being put on the board of this company his connections to his father, who's vice president, and setting up a meeting with his father. This is a bombshell beyond bombshells. This is and should be the number one story being run on every major news outlet in this country. And you're hearing crickets right now. The silence is deafening by the media on this. You have reports of Twitter blocking people who are sharing or posting articles that have been published, mostly from conservative outlets, about this. This is the definition of outrageous. You now have very compelling evidence. Now, whether all of it's true, it may not be. In this country, we have a a presumption of innocence in this country for people, and this and, and, and maybe in a weird world, this is there's nothing wrong here, nothing to see here. This is all just circumstantial and just looks really, really bad. It's an election year. It's October. It's a couple weeks of the election. This is you know just being thrown out there, and maybe maybe it's not as bad as it really looks. But I beg to differ on that because I've been following this uh, issue that happened for a while uh, with Burisma and with Ukraine. And the reason why we know so much about this and why I don't buy that this is fake or made up or or not as big of a bombshell as it really is, is we literally, as a country, the Democrat Party in this country, a political party, impeached a sitting 
president of the United States of America, an attempt to remove a president of the United States. So um, this is a group that attempted to remove a president of the United States of America for making a phone call, a phone call to Ukraine, right? He contacts the Ukrainian leader in this phone call, which we have the transcript. We had impeachment hearings over. The phone call had to do with, hey, someone needs to look into, or I wish someone would, look into the situation with Burisma and Biden, the Biden family, and what they were up to over there. And I've heard stories and things like that, right? We impeached a president because that came up, right? We impeached a president because the the assumption that something was done wrong and the alluding to looking into something, right? No, no actual crime there. No, nothing actually committed as a crime, it was the alluding to maybe someone should look into us. We got this guy. He's probably going to run for president, and he could be as corrupt as, you know, who knows what. We impeached the president over that as a country and thankfully didn't remove the president over that. Now we have actual evidence that a former vice president of this country while in office and current candidate leading in the polls to be president was involved in not only lying to the American people about what happened with Burisma and his son, but very compelling evidence has now come forward that he was involved actively in a quid pro quo to withhold foreign aid, public policy of the U.S. government, to withhold aid from another country. If a certain person wasn't fired that had a connection to a company his son was working on, making and profiting money off of. You know, that is something that, one, is worthy of at least a major investigation into this. But I don't understand how this isn't being reported in every media outlet out there. I mean, how is everyone not running with this story and trying to find out as much information as they possibly can? Because the dumb Joe Biden um, memes only go so far, Right. Joe Biden, you know, oh, Joe Biden, just a good old guy. Right. And, and you can say, I understand the argument. I understand the argument of sitting back and saying, hey, you know, he has a good kid. He had a bad kid and the bad kid was doing stuff and behind his back and he didn't know about it. Right. And, and when he maybe found out a little bit about it, he didn't want to say anything because he wanted to protect his son. And, you know, he's just, hey, you know, my son does dumb stuff and I don't, you know, it doesn't reflect on me. It's just my son doing stupid things. But when your son is flying on Air Force Two, to China and making deals with these Chinese business people and taking millions of dollars in investment money from them and funneling them into these companies that he's made. And he's profiting millions and millions of dollars while flying on the taxpayer's dime, while Joe Biden, the vice president of the United States, is on and in a country doing official business for the United States. And Joe Biden didn't say stop, didn't say no, this is unacceptable. You can't be doing this while I'm I'm on official business. You might do dumb stuff all the time, but you need to do dumb stuff on your own and don't involve me in your dumb stuff. The fact that that was that's an atrocity. I mean, that's atrocious that that would even occur in the United States. It's corruption at the highest level of the United States. And it has to be answered. It has to be investigated. It has to be looked at. And the more stories that come out on this and the more the media ignores it, which is 
the real sign that this is probably all true was when the media doesn't cover it, right? It is all a complicit maneuver by the media to avoid getting Joe in trouble before the election, right? To avoid things to come up that can be used against them, right? We're still supposed to have one more debate. We have town halls coming up um, uh, uh, that are going to come up on ABC and NBC, dueling town halls with the presidential candidates, and there's still supposed to be another debate coming up. And the reality is you have a candidate that has a lot of skeletons, it seems like, in his 47-year-old uh, closet of political campaigning and, uh, and being in office. And now those skeletons are coming out, and it looks like this one could be a major one. You, you use foreign policy of the United States government, foreign aid money by the United States government, withheld it from a country that was at war. Remember, that country was at war. We, we were told that in, over and over and over again. We were told that in the impeachment hearings, that withholding money from a country that's at war is, is, is horrible, and an ally that needs us, and all those things, even though the Obama administration with Joe Biden never gave them any kind of uh, actual weapons that they asked for. Um, it was just, you know, we'll give you hopes and prayers and some money. But um, we were told that that's a terrible, terrible thing. And we were told that simply, simply alluding to investigating somebody over um, improprieties that have uh, may have happened or may not have happened that deal with corruption, we were told that that making a phone call and alluding to that was an impeachable offense under our system. The Democrats laid that out. Nancy Pelosi laid that out. That's an impeachable offense. So my question to all the listeners is, if that's an impeachable offense, then what is actually with threatening to withhold money from a country that your son is involved in a corrupt organization that's being investigated by that country and you meet with those people you're aware of everything they're doing and yet you still promote withholding the money and getting a prosecutor file fired you actively are playing a role as vice president of the united states and the affairs happening in another country what is that worth if it's worth impeaching a president that's a sitting president, is it even fathomable that we put a person who has that in their background and has that in their history at, in that office of president? I mean, we impeach or remove a president from office for making a phone call, yet we'll put someone who is actively involved in this kind of corruption in that office? That, my friends, is insanity. And that is what's happening in politics today. So thank you very much for listening. Um, I'm James O'Hara, of course. You can follow me on Politics Today uh, at Facebook, um, politicstodayjro at gmail.com. I am on the Spotify, and I'm also on the iHeartRadio and on other places like Apple Podcasts where you get your podcasts. So please download, share, uh, and get this out there to the world. I appreciate all of you, and I'll see you next time.